Welcome to the TEH, the Tech Enthusiast Hour podcast, where several hosts talk about what they find interesting in tech this week. The show notes for this episode are at tehpodcast.com slash teh58. This week, we have three hosts. I'm Randy Cassingham, founder of thisistrue.com, the oldest entertainment feature on the internet, and the get out of hell free card. Don't leave this earthly plane without one. An online, <laughs> offline viral. I'm Leo Notenboom, lover of coffee, corgis, and computers, and apparently snow this week. Not always in that order. And of course, I'm the Leo behind AskLeo.com. I'm Kevin Savitz, uh, lover of uh, printables and pugs. I think I'm going I'm to roll into that. I'm just going to make that my thing now. I'm totally stealing that uh, from you, Leo. Uh, let's see. So I am creator of FreePrintable.net, which offers uh, 48,017 printable documents and templates and faxzero.com, which lets you send a fax anywhere in the U.S. or Canada for free or $2. You are allowed to steal it under one condition. Mm. You have to host a party that includes 100 pugs um, at a location. In your yard. In your yard, yeah. Well, I know, I know it's, Kevin doesn't have a huge yard, so you may want to get a different place for it. But yes, oh. as soon as you host the, uh, I guess it'd be the Pacific Northwest Pug Picnic, then, <laughs> then, then you're good. But until okay. then, yeah. Until then, all right. I'll... Just to make sure that listeners understand this, Leo does do that with corgis. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. In fact, we actually set a date. August the 3rd of this year is going to be the 2019 uh, Pacific Northwest Corgi Picnic. Uh, and we do expect uh, 100 corgis running around my backyard. I think it's the 18th we've done. Uh, we've been doing this for a while. Wow. So, yeah. It's like 1,800 corgis. It's a lot. Well, actually, yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> and it's a lot of poop. It's a lot. The poop of 100 corgis is nothing to be, well, it's something you could weaponize. I'll put it that way. It's <laughs> so. a new startup idea for you. There you go. <laughs> Weaponizedcorgipoop.com. <laughs> and Leo will give a uh, URL for pictures from the last picnic or some other picnic. Well, actually, the place okay. to go is p- pnwpicnic.com, um, which is actually a really easy one to remember. And uh, it currently points to the uh, information about this year's uh, picnic. But of course, there are links to preceding picnics where you will then find links to photographs. And if you can't remember PNW picnic, that will be on the show page. There so there. We got you covered. Mm-hmm. Yep. Corgi poo. That's what you're covered in. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's not as illiterate as pug poo. No. True. No, it's You've got an opportunity. I mean, let's face it, Kevin, is pugpoo.com available? <laughs> I haven't checked, but I, I would bet a dollar that it is. <laughs> well, make sure you grab it before this airs. Then. Yeah, really. <laughs> so. so what's been going on this week, guys? Snow. Snow. Yeah, I'm getting, I'm getting inundated. In fact, as we speak, uh, we're recording on Monday evening, and um, it is snowing relatively heavily here. The way I, I characterized it uh, somewhere, in my, actually in the, the notes for the newsletter that's going out tomorrow morning, is that um, you know, Seattle is the northernmost major city in the continental US, uh, USA. 
Um, mm. It's one of those things that's not particularly intuitive, but when you take a look at a map, you can see that, yeah, we're further north than, uh, than uh, many. You know, every other major U.S. city and a bunch of major Canadian cities as well. So this city will shut down for half an inch of snow. Um, as of this morning, we had nine, and wow. there's more coming down. And so this is, uh, this is definitely characterized as an event in this, this neck of the woods. It's setting records and, uh, in many different ways and uh, just having fun. We ended up having to run an errand today. There was a break in the snow. I'm loving my four-wheel drive Sequoia. It's nice and heavy, and I've got good tires on it, and you know, I'm not afraid of snow. I know how to drive in it. Uh, but there's, uh, there's definitely a lot of, of people who are rightfully staying home. And right now, with the snow continuing to come down, I expect to, uh, to stay home now for the next couple of days. So of no, course, Randy, nine inches is nothing to you, right? Well, no, I mean, that's, you know, Colorado-level snow. Right. Um, this year, it's been sticking on the ground because temperatures have been cold. Usually, we get snow, and then it kind of gets warm and melts off, and then we get snow, and it just... <laughs> It's a cycle just repeats. The mountains look great, though. Um, love, <laughs> I love it in the mountains. But this year, it's been snow and then 20 degrees. So it doesn't melt. And right. And it's snow. It accumulates, yeah. Yeah. And we, we're getting some wind. So there's an ice layer on the bottom, which we can see now because the wind has blown all the powder off the top. <laughs> so it's very interesting. Today, it snowed all day. Not too much wind, but you know when the front was coming in, we got a lot of wind. So it's it's interesting driving in that because it it looks like you know a reasonable amount of snow, not too much, but your tires punch through that pretty quick and get to the ice, and it can be pretty hairy. It's kind of scary out here because the temperature is hovering right at around freezing. So depending mm-hmm. on your altitude. Um, we're at 500 feet, so that's why we're getting snow. But of course, as you get lower down, it's warming up a little bit. And the uh, the, the concern, my concern, of course, is that um, with just a little bit of melting, all of the snow and ice that is on the road is going to turn into really, really slick, wet stuff, which is one of the reasons that even if it is getting a little bit warmer, and even if the snow does turn to rain over the next few days, which is one possible scenario, I'm still glad to be staying home. I, I feel like I've missed out. We were promised a snowmageddon here in Portland. Or we're mm-hmm. not promised, but it was like it could happen, and it, it might be huge and big, and we, you know, and then we, we had like a dusting. It was just nothing. Right. And the city uh, prepared, I think. I mean, my wife went to, the, went to the grocery store and she said like everyone was at the grocery store. And then later, like hours later, my daughter went to the grocery store. She said everyone was at the grocery store. You know, people were, were clearing out shelves, getting ready for what could have been a huge event. And then just, in, at least in my neck of the woods, nothing happened. They uh, must have seen the videos from Seattle because we had exactly the same thing. In fact, for various reasons, I ended up stopping by one of our local grocery stores last week before the Beijer Snow event, and it was incredible. I've never seen the parking lot completely full, the lines to the checkout backed up way into the aisles. I mean, it's, and, and then, of course, the photographs in the news the next day showed, you know, lots of empty aisles. People apparently love to buy up all the bread and all the milk mm-hmm. uh, for whatever reason. Um, before before these events. It's just been crazy. Now, of course, we had snow. And I was, in fact, before this all happened, I was kind of chiding our weathermen because 
they love, they absolutely love to say, oh my gosh, it's going to snow, it's going to snow, and then nothing happens. Not unlike what you just experienced, Kevin. Yeah. But this time they apparently got it right. Uh, this is, um, uh, like I said, record-breaking up here. Mm-hmm. And you know, I was looking on, on Twitter, and a lot of people, just people like to be snarky on Twitter. I think that's what it's for. Um, <laughs> in many people's opinions, it's like, oh, you know, people were, you know, overprepared and they went crazy buying out the stores and stuff. And I'm just like, good. You know, people prepared for a possible, to take care of themselves in a possible weather event. Good. You know, better safe than sorry. Think about having some stuff in, in storage. Well, yeah. So a friend of mine in, in, that's a member of one of the emergency response groups that I'm a member of, um, he made a very interesting point. If you have to panic at the last minute to get stuff to be prepared for a multi-day mm-hmm. um, yeah. event, you're not prepared. Up here, we should be prepared for a multi-week earthquake event. So sure. like I said, I happen to go to the grocery store just for a couple of incidentals. But in reality, should something happen we've got at least three weeks worth of food, including pet food that, you know, we could survive on our own just fine for that length of time. Sure. A lot of people apparently can't. And right. Well, there's a difference out. though, between surviving on emergency rations that you may have stored away and living a, a nice week in the snow and you know, <laughs> having some <laughs> enjoyable meals, um, you know, to prepare. There's a, it's a huge gap in, in, in surviving and, enjoying we ended up stopping by the grocery store this afternoon and it was really interesting to see what was um which shelves remained more or less decimated and which ones weren't and uh, so there was there was no milk to be had right gallons of milk they were gone the clearly the 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 restocking truck hadn't made it in Mm -hmm. Uh, but the other one that i thought was kind of interesting was that there was we got i think we got the last bottle of vodka um, so now that's people, an emergency. <laughs> people were preparing in their own way. Sure. You know? <laughs> yeah, my wife said, you know, my wife had a bunch of cart full of food. She said that the the uh, woman in, in in front of her in line had uh, what are the, the Duraflame logs and wine. That's what she had. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what happens when it snows in Colorado? It stays below zero for a week. Nothing. Baby boom. You, you go out in your t-shirt and you grill. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, it'll be interesting. Actually, that uh, uh, Kevin, you raise a really interesting point. We should be paying attention nine months from now to see what's happening up here. See if the hospitals are a little extra busy delivering babies. Sure. So almost certainly. Yep. All right, Leo. Which you? Oh no, actually, Kevin, you've got something. Kevin had something else to throw I in. I, I discovered something cool. I, I don't know if this is new, but it was new to me, and it was how I spent some of my week. I discovered um, some comic books by a woman named uh, Julia Evans, and uh, these are are comics that you can print out, um, double sided color zines. I so freeprintablecomics.com. Well, some some are <laughs> yeah, they're at, at wizardzines.com. Some are free, and some are ten dollars. Um, and therefore, they're very, they're nerdy. Um, the one I'm, I've got in my hand here is called Bite Size Command Line. And there's another one here called uh, Bite Size Linux. And uh, they, they're fun to browse and learn about how command line and Linux things work um for instance they're in Bites, actually educational they are no they are educational and they're they're little zines they've got little cartoons in them but basically uh for instance uh here's the page in bite size command line about the find command uh on, on in linux or bsd it tells you what find does searches for 
you know, directory for files. And then here's how it works. And then, you know, but if you look at the man page for some of these things or any of these things, you can really get overwhelmed by hundreds of options and you don't understand how they work together. So these little zines really show like how, just how to use it. Here's what you need to know. Here you can do a dash size zero to find empty files, or you could do, um, you know, dash execs to run a command on every file found, or don't even use find, you use locate because it's faster, but you have to, you know, prepare the, the database. Um, anyway, it's there. I find them super readable and uh, um, just enjoyable to thumb through um, when, when you're staring off into the distance or, you know, otherwise occupied with, with uh, mindless stuff. So uh, anyways, uh, I bought all three of, I bought three of them, uh, the one on, on Linux and the one in command line. And she has a bunch on, uh, one on uh, Linux debugging tools. That one's free. Uh, one on networking um, and one on uh, spying on your programs with Strace. I don't even know what that is. Um, and how to use TCP dump and stuff. So anyway, they're, they're adorable and uh, they're ed- educational and they're cheap or free. And I recommend checking them out. It's fascinating to find tech reference information that can be actually categorized as quote unquote Adorable. <laughs> sure. <laughs> well, they are. I'm standing cool. by that. Yeah. I have to take a look at those. They sound really interesting. Yeah, they sound like fun. So, um, I am on a mission. In fact, I'm going to mention it in our upcoming article on Ask Leo. I want more people to use the password checkup extension to Google Chrome. Not necessarily saying you ought to switch to Google Chrome because of it, but because Google Chrome is the most popular browser currently in use, at least on PCs, um, it is something that I'm going to start recommending people install and pay attention to. What it does is as you are logging into the various sites that you log into, it checks to see if the password you are using for that site appears in any of the compromised databases that we've heard so much about over the last few years. Now, before you go freaking out and thinking that we're sending your password, are you still there? You glitched out for a second, but... I did. Our our power actually um, uh, cycled here. Ooh. I lost you. We lost you again? I think you had a blackout. Yeah, he disappeared for me, so I thought it was my connection. No, he said... There we go. My internet connection is unstable, and the reason it's unstable is because our power started flickering. So do you have... What do you have UPS? Let's let's switch topics right now. Okay. What what do you have on UPS, and are you... Are, are you in blackout situation right now, or did you just brown out? No, I'm not. I've got lights back again. Okay. Um, in theory, everything between my laptop, I'm using a laptop, so it by definition has its own UPS. Sure. Um, everything between here and there should be UPSed with the exception, now that I look at it, um, of the docking station I currently am using to uh, provide power to the UPS, but it's also where my um, hardwired internet connection. So when, I, when I'm connected for these sessions, 
mm-hmm. and for anything else, you know, relatively important, I actually connect my laptop to a docking station that then provides a hardwired Ethernet connection down to my basement. The networking equipment in the basement is itself on a UPS. So that's all there. And had this been a wireless connection, we probably never would have noticed. Hmm. Uh, in reality, we've just identified an interesting and single point of failure that uh, I'm going to have to think about how I'm going to do this uh, in the future. Hopefully the power will stay on for a while. It's hard to find those points of failure until they ha- until they the happen. Right. Yeah. I, I, I had an issue uh, many years ago. I, I, I thought I was being clever and I had my, my computer at the time all set up. So that if, if the power, and this is when I was living, living in Northern California, when, when the power went out quite a bit um, and I thought I had everything set up with UPSs. And so that if the power went out, I would still have internet for a period of time. I would be able to shut down nicely and whatever. And then the first time that happened, the power went out and I still had internet. My computer was still on and all that, except it turned out that the, the, U, the, the USB hub uh, that was connected to the computer, the keyboard was, oh. was not powered, did not have power. Right. And so yeah. I lost keyboard. So I couldn't really shut down the computer properly. And all that, so. Right. And in fact, that's effectively what's happened here. I mean, ultimately, this this docking station that I'm using is a glorified USB hub. And to be fair, it actually hasn't come completely back. While you and I are able to talk, which implies that my internet connection is in fact um, there, um, it's possible that we switch to the wireless connection. Yep, we're on a wireless connection right now. Um, the USB, I'm sorry, the, uh, the uh, docking station itself hasn't actually recovered because my uh, wired keyboard and my wireless ma- or my wired mouse are um, inoperative. Hmm. So, yeah, uh, something else to think about. Interesting tangent yeah. when the power goes out. All right, Leo, tell us about... Uh Anyway, <laughs> anyway, what I was leading up to was that uh, the password checkup extension to Google Chrome browser will tell you if the password you just used has been discovered in one of the many data breaches that we've uh, talked about over the last several weeks and months, actually. Now, before you freak out and say, well, my gosh, it's sharing my password in order to be able to check it and that kind of thing, No. That's not how this tool works. Your password does not leave your computer other than the fact that you're to whatever site you happen to be logging into. The way tools like this work is that they use what's called a hash to encode your password in such a way. It's called a one-way hash. In other words, you can take a password and create this hash that will be unique to that password but there is no way to reverse engineer the password from the hash. So it's actually using a very secure method to check to see if your password shows up in any of these databases. Sure enough, I installed it just a few days ago and a couple of the passwords that I was using, um, not the least of which was one to my Netflix account, was in fact uh, a password that has been discovered in one of the many breaches. Now, it doesn't mean that my Netflix account was breached. What it means is that that password showed up in a breach. So what that implies, and one of the reasons I actually have to write an article about this to explain it, so to, because we have to be very careful about this, is that if you use the same password in two places, say I use it on site A and site Netflix, 
if site A gets compromised, but it happens to use the same password as site Netflix, then that password is out there. And hackers know to run around to various sites and try that password and your email address against all of these sites, including potentially Netflix. So in my case, uh, it's one of the things I did right away. I, I immediately changed my Netflix password. It gets complicated because Netflix in particular is a password you want to make easy to type. And the reason you want to make it easy to type is because you end up entering it into these random devices mm -hmm. that don't necessarily have keyboards. So for example, as soon as I change my Netflix password, I have to kind of do this funky dance on my Xbox where I have, a net, where I have the Netflix app installed or on my Roku where I actually also watch Netflix from time to time. And it's got to be a password that I can remember and that's easy to type. In my case, I keep it very long. It's a you know, very simple series of unrelated words, but length is what trumps everything. The bottom line here, though, is that I think that it's very easy to think you're secure, to think that there's nothing wrong with the passwords that you're using, only to find out that, oh, crap, this password I've been using for years shows up in this database dump. You need to change it on the accounts that you care about. And this extension to Chrome is going to tell you when you happen to use it. So I honestly think it's a very important piece of security that Google added to the Chrome browser, or at least as an option to the Chrome browser. And I strongly recommend that people investigate using, uh, installing it and using it. So two observations. One is some people might say, I don't care if somebody uses my Netflix account. And, you know, big deal. But a lot of people use the same password on things like their bank account their brokerage account and things that they really do care about. So maybe you're not worried about Netflix. You should be worried about your money. Absolutely. And, and like I said, Netflix in my case is just the example that came up immediately and is one of those things that's very easy to, to discuss and share. But in reality, people share passwords. People reuse passwords across a wide variety of accounts of varying degrees of importance. And regardless, this rule about never using the same password twice is a really important one because you may think you're only using it on, on something that isn't very important until you find out after the fact that, oops, yeah, I happen to use that same password on my banking account because I also have to make it easy to log in on my phone or on my whatevers, right? Yeah. So the, the second point or tangent I want to go on is that things like LastPass have password checkers in them. They will go through your password and say, oh, this one's not particularly secure or you're using this one in multiple places. But it sounds like this plugin that you're using will even work with LastPass. So you don't have to only be using type-in passwords. Even if you're using a vault, it's checking those passwords. Is that correct? That is correct. And in fact, I didn't type in my Netflix password. It just got entered for me by LastPass. And then the plugin said, hey, you may want to rethink this password because you're, you, you know, it was discovered in a breach. Um, it's interesting. LastPass 
to the best of my knowledge, will do exactly what you described. It'll tell you if you've got poor passwords and it will tell you if you use the same password in multiple places in your LastPass vault. I don't believe it has the facility to actually check the online database of compromised Other password vaults do. I forget exactly which one, but there is at least one that, as part of its functionality, will tell you if the password you just set is one that's already been compromised or if a password that it finds in the vault is already one that's been compromised. Installing this plugin kind of makes that an, an interesting but moot point where as you go through using the various passwords to log in your system, to log into the various servers you use, you get told them. All right. Well, it sounds like a good thing. And while we're kind of I believe objective, it. as long as you're done, go ahead. Sure. Go ahead. Yeah. Yep. Uh, ZDNet article this morning that I read convinced me to upgrade my laptop from Windows 7 Pro to Windows 10. And you know, the, you, know. go ahead. I was just going to say that was the sound of my jaw dropping and hitting the floor. <laughs> well, you know, I like Windows Seven. It's it's been pretty stable. Um, my software is compatible. Yada yada yada. But this article in ZDNet, which I'll link to on the show page, um, pretty much talks about why it is you really do want to upgrade, and a large part of that is it's built from the ground up with security much more in mind than way back when Windows 7 came out. In what year, Leo? I don't know. Um, I have no, I forget. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's been time. a few years. It's yep. been quite a few years. So, and not only that, there's some stability things and not to mention that Windows 7 uh, support is going to be ending soon, less than a year now. Yeah, there's there's articles that say you can pay to continue your support, but the real answer to that is no, you can't. Because right, if, if you're, you're an enterprise, big, you can. Yeah. If you're, if if you're a, a business, big company yeah. that has Fuck. thousands of computers, yes, they'll let you pay something like 150 <laughs> bucks a year per computer to continue yeah. getting updates. Then well, and what's year, worse, it's going to double. And then the exactly. year after that, it's going to double again. They're really trying to get people to stop using this software because its security is not as good as what they have now. So the only um, objection I have to the statement that you made is that it was built from the ground up with security in mind. With, That's, with to, to a greater extent. It was not um, ground up. Everything that's happened to Windows 10, everything that has happened to Windows 10 is by definition an incremental improvement over the base that was Windows 7. Now, they may have made some incredibly major and important changes to Windows 10, um, which I certainly agree with. I mean, I absolutely agree with that Windows 10 is significantly more secure than Windows 7 ever was. And more importantly, it will continue to improve in that regard, whereas Windows 7 will not. But um, Windows 10 was based on Windows 7. It's, there, there's really no, no ground upping here. Um, it was just a significant focus on things like security over time. And I really think that a lot of that happened after it was released, to be honest. I think that a lot of the improvements we're currently seeing in Windows 10 um, are things that happened um, as a result of the, what many would call the beta experience of the previous two years. 
years worth of Windows 10 releases. So um, in your case, Randy, I think that uh, it's a perfect time for you to upgrade. I think that you'll be, um, you will continue to be frustrated, but you will be frustrated by a different set of issues that won't be security related. Okay. So one of the other things that the article pointed out is, and it's actually in the title, why should I pay to upgrade to Windows 10? And the answer is you probably don't have to. Right. I know that when I bought my computer, it even said it includes a Windows 10 license and they actually had a, a disk in there, even though the computer doesn't have a disk drive to, um, or a CD drive to upgrade your computer. And then obviously it's going to have to do a lot of updates because this disk is now several years old. But most people, again, outside of an enterprise, do not have to pay for Windows 10. I mean, there was a big deal about, oh, you, you know, if you want it, you got to do it by such and such a date. Not really true. And the article tells you how. Right. There are definitely back doors to getting Windows 10 for free still. Um, but to, so unfortunately, my internet connection tends to, is still being unstable because of my power glitches. So I missed some of what you said. But um, like I said, there are definitely ways to get Windows 10 for free still. And I don't think uh, Microsoft has been particularly motivated to close that door, uh, to be honest. I think they're much more interested in getting people to Windows 10 than they are trying to make the incremental dollar by forcing individuals to, uh, uh, to pay for it. Uh, but even if you do have to pay for it, honestly, it's kind of worth it. Yeah, it's like, what, $129 or something? It's not I think ridiculous. that's the retail, yeah. Yeah, something on those, those orders. It depends on the version. Personally, I tend to still uh, recommend the pro edition because you get some additional, uh, you get some additional functionality, but more importantly, you get some additional tools that allow you to make it, it, that makes it easier for you to tweak your configuration in potentially some important ways. Um, But unfortunately the difference between home and pro for some people can be a deal breaker in terms of cost. Um, I, like I said, I'm not sure exactly the retail prices today, but there are so many ways to get it um, either at a discount or for free. Um, that I don't think that's a big a big issue uh, that should stop people from investigating it. Well, the bottom line is I've been convinced I haven't done it yet since today was a big deadline day for me, but uh, sometime later this week, I will be taking the plunge. And you know what my recommended first step is, right? Of course. I will be doing a complete image backup, probably two Thank of them. You. Yes, I would strongly recommend the same. Um, because there's, there's still a couple of things that could potentially go wrong. The machine that you're running, um, how old is it? What model is that one? It's a Dell Latitude, um, a WinBook type with uh, about eight gigs of RAM, half a terabyte of solid-state hard drive, you know, fairly high-end processor. It was a $2,000 machine. How and, old is it? Uh, probably between three and four years. Okay. Yeah, you're probably fine. It'll probably be a be a a, a smooth upgrade for you. But um, uh, and it was designed for Windows 10 too, so I, I'm Good. I'm fairly confident. Yep. Back up anyway. Yep. Oh, I will. <laughs> All right, Kevin, you've got something interesting. I do. My interesting thing is I, I like to use Macintosh, and so I don't have to deal with this particular issue. <laughs> oh yeah, let, yeah. Let's have yeah. that discussion every time we we upgrade from like Mojave to whatever, or high you know high right. Sierra to whatever else comes next, and all the discussions that happen around that. So and and how many things break when you do that, including the entire computer? 
Sure. Yes. Yeah. No. Yeah. yeah. That never happens on a Mac. I'm sure. Yeah. No. Right. <laughs> uh, let's see. The thing I wanted to talk about, that I thought was interesting, was that uh, Backblaze, which is a company that uh, lets you back up your computers to the cloud, um, they go through. They use a lot of hard drives. Because <clears throat> it turns out the cloud isn't actually a cloud. It's uh, server rooms filled with hard drives. And Backblaze, ha- for the last five years, has been publishing reports about the hard drives that they buy and basically the, the failure rates of those drives. And so, I mean, they go through drives and they keep stats. And for the, so for the last five years, they've been publishing these reports, including you know, spreadsheets and, and a lot of details. And their most recent one uh, report just came out, uh, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, I found it interesting. Uh, it said, uh, as of uh, the end of 2018, they had 106,919 spinning hard drives. And uh, of, of that number, you know, they said how many are boot drives and how many are data drives. And um, then they talk about what kinds of drives they're, they're buying, and and they talk about specifically what what brands fail. The things that I thought were interesting, a couple things. First of all, I liked looking at the uh, Backblaze's report, but then it was fun to look at other reports, kind of the what different um, uh, news outlets pulled out of it. Um, in the, the Backblaze report, they said they're, they're no, for instance, they're no longer using four terabyte drives. They, they are, they're too small, and now they're adding drives that are uh, 12 terabytes um, and 14 terabytes are, are where they're headed now. So those little drives just take up too much space for, for their storage, uh, what storage you get, I guess. Um, and uh, they said um, at the end of 2018, Backplace had over 23,000 um, four gigabyte Seagate hard drives and over the course of the last year, 2.13% of them failed. For comparison, the data storage company had just 0.69% of its Toshiba uh, hard drives fail, and that was the second worst performance in the site. So, but then I like looking at the at the like for instance with the cult of Mac, what their their take on it was, and they said that the uh, annualized they pointed out that the annualized fail rate for the year for all hard drives across the board was 1.25%, which was down considerably from previous years. Um, the year before it was 1.7%, and the year before that it was 1.9%. So overall, hard drives are getting more reliable. And uh, um, and then PC Gamer, which of course is aimed at high-end drives for high-end systems for high-end gaming people. Uh, their take on it was that hard drive reliability report instills confidence in the eight to 12 terabyte capacity hard drives, which ended up being some of the most reliable. Was there any kind of a breakdown with respect to a solid state versus physical? I don't know. I did not see that. Um, they've published a lot of data and it's kind of hard to get through all of it. Um, sure. But I don't know. I think I think for they since they want big they are mostly uh right. still working with 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 spinning drives. I, I saw this when it came out a couple of weeks ago and was yeah. fascinated by it and probably should have brought it up on an earlier episode but um what I think the lesson to take away from this is that your stuff that's in the cloud 
it's not in, like Kevin said, it's not in a cloud. It's on spinning hard drives in a data center somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, they get failures. They, so they use schemes to have redundant copies of your data. So if a hard drive crashes and dies like they expect, they know it's going to happen, they don't lose your data. So, you know, they replace the drive and rebuild that again and, and go merrily on. Mm-hmm. So it, but it's really interesting that this, you know, one backup company has over 100,000 spinning hard drives in their data center to hold backups. I think that's really neat. Right. And you know that that's a small number compared to some of the other providers like, like Google Amazon or Google oh, yeah. or yeah. even Microsoft's own Azure in the back end there. Um, there's a, a bunch of drives out there in the world. And uh, yeah, uh, what is, was it a 1.25% failure rate over the course of a year? Yep. As you say, that's, that's actually not bad. Yeah. And, but and when the you worst, think about it. And, and the worst mm-hmm. were approaching uh, 2.13% for the, for the worst drives. So yeah, I mean, I know my kind of takeaway is if you're just, you're just a schmo with a computer and a couple of hard drives, just keep in mind that you've got a one or 2% chance that this year, one of those drives will die. So yes. <laughs> so back up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's all there is to it. And the older it gets, the more that likelihood goes up. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting. And I don't know if they addressed this in this year's report, but there's actually a really interesting curve to failure. Um, yeah. It's very often very hot, front loaded. Right. There's a front-loaded, what they refer to as infant mortality, drives that are likely to fail within the first like three or six months worth of use. But then once they've passed that particular point in time, their expected longevity goes up like by an amazing amount. They're likely then to last for years, uh, which is also kind of fascinating. And and I'm going to have to go take a look at this report, of course, but um, I'm hoping they address that to some extent as well. I think they do. I, I read it a couple of weeks ago, but I, I think they go into that. So it's, yeah. it's interesting. Yep. 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 And the one point that I do want to make that, that um, um, I'm hoping they bear out, it's been my sense for a very long time that um, this year's darling, well, whoever you know, may have had the best um, failure rate uh, of, among all the manufacturers could easily be um, next year's or the years thereafter scapegoat because these things, my experience has been that these things tend to be very, very cyclical. Um, for a long time, for example, I was a big fan of Western digital drives and then they started to have problems. And I went over to, uh, I think it was Hitachi drives. And they started to have problems. So it's not the kind of a thing where your experience from even just a couple of years ago is necessarily going to hold true today. It's one of those things where you really do kind of, if, if you really are trying to maximize the length of the drive you're about to purchase, you kind of sort of want to look into uh, reports like this to understand who's doing well today uh, because who was willing doing well a couple of years ago may not uh, still be true. Mm-hmm. And like you said, I mean, I think SSDs make, makes it a whole, whole different thing. Right. And, and that's what's now. happening. That's what's happening with um, a lot of individual computers uh, in the home. Like for example, the laptop, the new laptop that I just got that I'm actually using right now, it's got a half a terabyte SSD. 
um, I think that I'm hoping that somebody takes on the same kind of depth of reporting on SSD longevity. Um, I know that the sense that I've gotten from the current crop of SSDs, the ones that have been made, say, in the last year or so, is that by and large, uh, with you know, relatively normal to aggressive usage, they uh, tend to outlast the machine in which they've been installed, um, which is exactly what you want, which is perfect as far as the drive is concerned. So speaking of, of, of hardware and other interesting tech, I ran across an article, um, again, at Bleeping Computer. Uh, obviously, that's a source I've mentioned here before, about um, a guy that has put together what he calls an offensive USB cable. Um, it's offensive, well, depending on whether or not you, you are going to be offended is up to you. But it's offensive in the, term, uh, in the, in the sense that it can be used as an offensive weapon. Um, the what he's done is he's actually built a uh, a keyboard emulator and Wi-Fi interface into the plug of a USB cable. The reason that that's significant is that by looking at the USB cable, you wouldn't know that it's any different from any other USB cable. Once plugged into your machine, it then appears as what's called a human interface device or HID to Windows and can then be one of the multiple keyboards connected to your machine. The reason that's interesting is because of the Wi-Fi interface. With the Wi-Fi interface to, through this cable, uh, you, someone can then remotely, uh, without your consent, and without any additional security or security uh, barriers, start typing on your machine or start mousing on your machine. So it's a very interesting um, uh, use of technology. It's a very interesting development. And it really reiterates to me at least that when getting any kind of a USB device, even as simple as what we would normally consider to be a dumb cable, we have to make sure we're getting them from trustworthy sources because apparently even your cables can't be trusted anymore. And he's actually um, putting together uh, technology and packages for resale. He's actually uh, marketing this as, a, as some kind of technology that others could potentially purchase and start installing in their cables. Great. You know, it was, it's old news that you can't really trust a thumb drive that you find. You do not want to put that into your computer. Right. Uh, but this takes it to a whole new level. Yeah. Who'd have thunk cable, right? Just yeah. a random USB cable. I mean, we've got, you know, I've got a, a box full of them downstairs and I'm pretty sure that those are old enough not to be, not to be of concern, but just, I mean, Wow. <laughs> you know, new cables in the future. How do you know it's safe? Now, there was one comment that was made, and this really only applies to the, to the charging scenario, but you can use what's ref uh, colloquially referred to as a USB condom. I think I mentioned these on a, on a previous episode. It's a little device that has a USB plug and a USB socket. USB uh, connects through four wires two of which are power and two of which are data. And what a USB condom does is it only connects the power connections, which means you can safely power or charge your uh, mobile device. The, uh, the issue, of course, is that if you try to do something more than that, you're actually using a cable as a cable to connect another device. That's not enough. 
but we've already heard stories of compromised charging stations where you might connect up a phone and suddenly um, have your data slurped up because the charging station is more than a charging station. A USB condom, of course, would protect you from that by not allowing the data to connect at all. Well, just another thing to worry about, but um, if you get your cables from a reliable source, you're likely going to be okay. We should hope so. Mm. All right. So moving on, uh, I was kind of rolling my eyes several weeks ago, and I, I can't remember if I mentioned it on an episode or not, but AT&T has started to update the phones that are out there in the wild to st- say instead of 4G that they're 5G phones. And there's a lot of eye rolling in the industry over this. This is BS. They're, you know, it's not really uh, 5G and AT&T says, oh, well, that's what we're calling our enhanced 4G. We're calling it 5G-E. Um, Sprint has actually sued them for confusing the marketplace and, uh, and basically unfair competition by saying they've got something that nobody else has when, in fact, pretty much everybody has it. So I just think it's kind of a, an interesting way to self-correct that some, you know, the government isn't doing anything about it. Is that their role? Yeah, maybe, maybe not. But now the courts are going to get their say. And uh, so Sprint is, I think, doing the right thing by calling BS on this. Yeah, I tend to agree with that. I mean, 5G is, means a specific thing in a technical terms, and the network doesn't exist yet. So, so, so my, my question to you guys is, does 5G really mean anything? And by that, I mean, who decides? Who decides what this random term gets to mean? And I think there's a standards body, isn't there? I assume it would there's be the LTE. Yeah, the 5G Infrastructure Association. There you go. I would assume. So, I mean, is, have they, for example, trademarked the term? Have they um, done something that um, um, clearly and I'm not sure if irrevocably is the right word, but have just made it clear that 5G means something exceptionally specific. And then, yes, you know, um, AT&T could be called to task for um, using um, a term that means one thing to try and mean something else. Modifying it with the E, which is what I understand they're doing. I mean, it doesn't show up as 5G on your phone. It actually shows up as 5GE. Is... their attempt perhaps to get around it, but it's a pretty poor attempt. I I just think it's really silly and um, it is confusing the marketplace. I don't have to upgrade my phone or I don't have to do this or that or the other thing because I've already got it. This sort of thing isn't new. I mean, this, uh, when 802, when everyone was, when Wi-Fi was relatively new and it was, you know, 802.11.0, G and then the new one was coming out, whatever, you know, that I don't remember the order of them right now. It doesn't matter. But networking companies would say like, Oh, our, our router is compatible with the new 802.11 N or whatever, which, and at that point, the, the, the specification hadn't been completed yet. So how can your router be, you know, compatible with thing that doesn't really exist? I mean, this, it's a kind of arms race that has been going on in computers since the beginning of computers. And, at some point, I think, yes, it 
what it becomes unethical at some point. It's just saying, uh, yeah, we're, we're ready for the future. And, and where's that line? I don't know. The, uh, my current pet peeve is actually uh, related to Wi-Fi, which was just what brought, makes me think of it. There is an ISP who shall remain nameless for the moment Comcast. that is advertising what they refer to as the fastest Wi-Fi which at its core is 100% accurate in the sense that, yeah, they may have a pretty cool router that does really fast Wi-Fi. There's really good Wi-Fi, whatever they've done with Wi-Fi. I don't go to my ISP for Wi-Fi. Wi-Fi is how I distribute it in my house, but my ISP, what I care about is the internet speed and the way that their advertising is structured is they imply, but they do not state, that this fastest Wi-Fi gives you a better internet experience, which is in no way related. Um, so on one hand, um, yeah, maybe we are all pushing the envelope in terms of technologies and standards. On the other hand, um, there's a very strong argument that says all it really is across the board is uh, over-aggressive marketing, uh, taking liberties with people's lack of understanding of the terms and the standards that really do or don't make a difference to what it is that they are, uh, they're doing. Here, here. Mm-hmm. So, of course, that, that ISP, sadly, is the one that I happen to use because they come to my house and they provide me good internet speed, but I don't care about their fastest Wi-Fi because that's not the choke point. <laughs> yep. My ISP sent me a new router, and they say it's faster, and I did not ask for it. it just I, I changed to a, a, a cheaper account and they're like, you're getting a new router. I'm just like, I like my old router. It's fine. They sent me this router and it's still sitting here in the box and they say it's faster and better. And, and, and basically their take, I'm like, what does that mean? Why is it, how is it faster? And they're just like, mm, the Wi-Fi is better. I'm just like, I, I'm not using the Wi-Fi on, the, on your crappy router. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I have a, I have a, a mesh network, you know, from Eero and, and uh, I'm not going to use your wife. So anyway, I don't know if I should upgrade or send this thing back. I'm, it, I know it's going to be a problem. At some point they're going to probably shut off my old router or charge me for the new router that I'm not using or something, but it is this bear, I guess. Yeah. The, so if, I think you and I have the same ISP. I got a, um, a replacement router just randomly. It showed up at my doorstep, not unlike what you just described, um, except it looks identical to my old router. And huh. their claim was that it included um, software or security updates that they weren't able to do over the wire. Huh? So, they simply had me replace the router and send the old one back. And it was, a, from my perspective, other than having to go back and reset the administrative password to my own rather than the default, um, sure. there was very little I had to do with it other than just, you know, take down my network for a few minutes while I replaced the box. Sure. Um, in, you my mentioned, go ahead. in my experience, though, routers don't really don't last forever. They're on all the time. They get hot. They do tend to, if not just outright die, then just sort of, degrade over time. And I, I don't like believing that because it feels non-scientific, non-specific to me, but, <laughs> but, but I think it's true. I think sometimes 
you know, if you have had the same router for years, just putting a new one, just make things run better. And maybe it's the new software, or maybe it's just the fact that it hasn't been sitting there in its own steeping in its own heat for the last five years. Well, like an operating system, they will stop updating it over Mm -hmm. time. So if nothing else, you could be more vulnerable to uh, hacker attacks and that kind of stuff. So yeah, it's probably a good idea to do it every number of years. The newer model probably has a faster CPU and just is more efficient at whatever it does and yada, yada. Um, yeah, the, the, other, the one thing I, I do do uh, when I think of it, because I don't have it on any kind of a schedule, is uh, reboot the thing. I do a, a, an actual reboot on my router just because I have so little faith that any operating system, no matter how good it is, doesn't degrade simply a little bit by... Um, you know, not having the opportunity to restart from scratch every once sure. in a while. Yeah, there's some and devices know, that you can get. Our, go ahead. No, sorry, our latency is kind of high tonight. Um, there's some devices you can get on Amazon that are basically little timers that will shut off your router at a time you say, say five in the morning, keep it off for a couple minutes and then turn it on again. So you kind of get a, a free automatic restart every day, you know, with fast, fresh routing. Right. Right. Um, Kevin, you mentioned you're using the, uh, what is it, the Eero? Yes. Why, mesh Wi-Fi. So congratulations. Welcome to the Amazon family. I just saw that just before we started. Yes, Eero has been purchased by Amazon. Yay, I guess. <laughs> uh, sure, it'll be fine. I've been bit by this before. I used to use, oh, what was it called? Mm, I used a video server thing, Sage TV. Um, and it was bought by Google and it was kind of humming along with software updates and stuff. And, and I, I liked it and that's how we watched our television for years. Um, and then it was bought by Google who just shut it down. They just, it was like, here, here's a, here's a free license code for, for every, everyone to use. And we're never updating the software ever again. And, you know, they said they would, of course, and we're so, you know, we're so happy to be bought by Google and it's going to put us in new directions. And they probably use the internal of the guts, some of the software guts. Or the patents. Somewhere, yeah, internally at Google. But they never, you know, they basically, Sage TV does not exist anymore. And so that's the first thing I thought of when I saw that Euro has been purchased by Amazon. It's like, mm. So the, the, yeah, the, the, the two things I'll have to say about that. One is Google right now has a, is developing a very bad reputation for doing exactly that or just randomly shutting down things that people enjoy. Um, Google, Google Reader, Reader, of course, is a, is a sort <laughs> from amongst many of us. Google Plus has pissed off a lot of people, the people that really like Google Plus, because apparently there's really no, you know, they're, they're announcing it's, it's getting closed and incrementally pieces of it are getting closed sooner than they thought. And there's really no exit strategy for the community that's been built out there. It is just, it's just like I said, annoying a lot of people. Um, on the other hand, uh, you know, Amazon... My sense is that they're doing it better, probably because they're doing it for more strategic business-related reasons. Um, Ring is a good example. Um, I've got, uh, as it turns out, I have Ring doorbells right now, mm-hmm. which, as it turns out, is a Google, or I'm sorry, is an Amazon-owned uh, company. And everything I've seen, again, so far, is that they're continuing to support it and not just promote it in their store, but actually do the right thing in terms of uh, 
of uh, you know promoting it as a as a continuing and ongoing and viable product and product family. So hopefully you'll be in that category uh, where they are buying it for strategic purposes to upgrade their uh, their own offerings. Sure, you may find uh, your stuff uh, repackaged as Amazon Basics Mesh Network. Okay, <laughs> great. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be a lot cheaper. I hope so, because Aero was, was was not cheap to start with, right? But, but, you know, so. but I've been happy with it. it it's uh, it, I seem to have Wi-Fi when you know I walk around the house and uh, speedy, and it it's uh, test the internet connection every night and yep. has some I, people I, really I, enjoy. I went the um, um, the Samsung route. I've got a Samsung mesh network out here now. And it seems to be doing okay. Um, occasionally, a couple of things seem to drop a little bit more often or reconnect. I'll just say reconnect a little bit more often than I would have expected out of something like that. But like I said, with the power outage we had earlier in the show, um, I'm now currently um, connected via that mesh network. And it all seems to be, like I said, there's probably a little bit more latency. I've noticed a couple of more dropouts than, than we might normally have, but it's been uh, pretty good. Mm-hmm. And I'm certainly not in a... I wouldn't call myself currently positioned particularly close to one of the, uh, uh, one of the uh, devices. All right. Do we have anything else? Uh, I'm just trying to dig out from snow here. Hopefully you'll hear from me again next week. (laughs) Hopefully you'll have more stable power. Yeah. Stable power is a good thing or I'll, I'll do something to put this, this device on a UPS. So it's not an issue. All right, Kevin. No, I'm good. I'm just thinking about the last time I replaced my UPSs or the batteries in them because that's the other thing that bites you is uh, you think you're set and you are set. I mean, everything's wired up nice and then a couple of years pass and the, those batteries very quietly die and then you've got about 10 seconds of uptime when the power goes out. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've replaced a bunch of batteries and the old batteries are sitting in my closet. I need to find a recycler that'll take them. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, fortunately, we've got the recyclers out here, but it's just remembering to do it and, and the, uh, the the pain of actually doing the ordering and the replacement and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, the only thing I need to add is our sincere apologies from all four of us that last week's episode was exactly one hour. This <laughs> is the Tech Enthusiast Hour, but we planned on never having it be exactly an hour. And last week... We failed. It'll never happen again. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I was horrified. I should have added some music or something. Or something, yeah. yeah. But anyway, a quick note that if you don't use a podcast app that automatically downloads episodes for you, you can get an email notification every time a new episode posts so you can listen to it on its show page. Just, There's a subscription form in the sidebar on or, every page of the or, site. Or just get a podcast app. There's some really good ones. Yeah. I mean, it, it really is very handy. You know, yeah. and, and, and any good RSS reader will also do. Um, yes. I, happen to, I happen to use Feedly. If Google Reader was still around, it would be an awesome approach. But you get the idea. There's many, many ways if you're interested to, to, to stay in touch with us. This is true. The show notes for this week are at tehpodcast.com slash teh58. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook at The TEH Podcast. We'd appreciate your rating this podcast in whatever app you use and tell a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll see you here again next week.
Bye-bye. Bye.